minds to grasp the truths of the gospel we're studying. In your name, amen. While the Smith family was very proud of their family tradition, their ancestors had come to America on the Mayflower, and many of their descendants were uh, well-known senators and Wall Street wizards. So they decided to compile a family history of, of their legacy for their children and grandchildren. They hired a fine author to do so. They were so very proud of their family. But one problem arose, how to handle great uncle George, the criminal, who was executed in the electric chair. The author said he could handle the story very tactfully. So when the book appeared, we read about George. It is said, great uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution, was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a complete shock. <clears throat> so that's how he handled it. <clears throat> well, the a lot of family pride, and of course, a lot of religious pride goes along often in a lot of families. So we're going to talk about Paul dealing with that today. <clears throat> Our study of Romans 4 has a special place in my heart because it was about 36 years ago when I was involved in a women's community Bible study that Karen Y. Davis led, that she asked me to teach this. And I, that was my first opportunity to ever teach a passage, having no idea that I'd have that privilege for 36 more years to come. So I love revisiting this chapter, though I found it very challenging this week. Uh, but it is a wonderful chapter where Paul is going to illustrate the truths that we learned last week that he taught to us about the gospel by giving Abraham as an example of how a person is justified before a holy God. So after presenting the case that all people, whether they're pagans in the bush or devoutly religious people attending services weekly or daily, the bottom line is all are guilty before a holy God. So Paul's going to continue his argument that being declared righteous before God is not based on human effort. It's not based on good works. It is only by faith. And therefore, there is no place for human boasting at all. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul continues to make the case regarding the fact that justification, being declared right with God, is only by faith. And it only makes sense that he would look to the example of Abraham in presenting this case to his Jewish audience. They looked to Abraham as the supreme example of a righteous man and had wrongly even concluded that, some, that his keeping the law or his circumcision or his righteous life was because he was such a righteous man on his own accord. And some even believed that he was sinless. <clears throat> that certainly is the same mindset of many people today who are identified with their particular faith be it a branch of Christianity or a false religion or even a pagan system of religion, they all have one thing the same in common. And that is you are responsible to please the deity that you worship by doing what is expected so that your future destiny requires you to attain a righteousness with your own power and effort. With this being the case for Jews and Gentiles alike, Paul now deals specifically with the Jewish people in Rome as he presents the example of Abraham being justified by faith. <clears throat> of course, the Jewish people of Paul's day would have agreed that their father Abraham was right with God because he was a righteous man, but they thought it was because of his righteous behavior. He's called the friend of God. He was chosen to be the father of a countless number of descendants. So he was the supreme example 
of a righteous man. But what the way Abraham was made righteous was not by his own efforts earned to God, by earning God's favor, but his salvation as a result as faith alone. In faith alone. This destroys the case for every single person who ever thinks that they are able to please God enough by keeping the code of their particular religion or denomination or tradition to get them to heaven. For the Jewish people, Abraham would certainly have been the most powerful illustration of justification being solely on the basis of faith. And I feel like I'm going to be repeating myself again and again and again because this is what Paul does in the chapter. So justification has always been by faith. Verse 1, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Obviously, the Jewish people would agree that Abraham was right in God's sight. So Paul says, you know what, let's take a closer look at his life. He now states that if Abraham had been justified by works, then he would have something to boast about in himself. But the point is, he didn't have anything to boast about before a holy God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Uh, There is no mention in that verse of the works or merits of Abraham, but rather the verse states that it is God who gave righteousness to Abraham as a free gift. It was Abraham's faith that brought about God declaring him righteous. The Lord reckoned or considered or counted this ungodly man from a pagan background worshiping moon gods and all other kinds of gods, but he reckoned him just. This was based on his faith in God's word that God would indeed give him a land he'd never seen and that he would indeed have descendants numerous as the stars and that all the nations of the world will be blessed because of his descendant. Jesus said in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So somehow, Abraham grasped that one of his own descendants would fulfill all that God had promised, resulting in the Messiah, who would be the sin-bearer for all who trust him. What incredible faith. If you've ever studied his life, you know there were times when he failed in his obedience. But his being accepted by God was never based on his righteous behavior or his lack of righteous behavior. Rather, it was God who justified Abraham because he trusted in God's kindness and grace and believed his word. It's not that he mustered up enough faith and therefore he could be saved. Faith is simply the conviction in a person's heart that believes that God has provided the free gift of salvation. In Galatians 3, 6-9, Paul makes the same case. And he reveals that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed in you. So in other words, all those that are of faith are blessed like Abraham, who was a man of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 make it clear that being in a right standing with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is the gift of God. In reality, this faith faith is a gift revealing that salvation is all the work of God 
from start to finish, even the ability to have faith to believe the message. God alone is to get the glory, therefore human boasting could never be valid. People are justified not just because their sins are forgiven, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given, imputed to the sinner. So God credits the sins that we've done of every believer, and he, and he places that on Christ, and then he credits Christ's perfect obedience and holy life, his perfect righteousness, and places it on the account of all those who trust him. Abraham's sin, just as your sins and mine, had to be paid for by the sacrifice of a perfect sacrifice, which was Jesus' death on the cross. The great exchange, you know, from 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only do sinners need a payment for our sin debt, but we need righteousness that can never come from ourselves. This is why the gift of salvation is so amazing. We ought to be awestruck that God would make a way for sinners to be declared righteous by the holy judge of the universe. You may recall in Genesis 11 and 12, God revealed himself to Abram and told him to leave his land, leave his relatives, and he partially obeyed that. He ended up taking his nephew Lot and his father as well. And he left and he settled in the land of Haran. And once his father died there, his father Terah, then he was ready to continue his journey and obey the Lord. But again, he compromised the truth. Remember, he lied about his wife. He said that she's my sister because he was trying to protect his own life. I mean, he had trusted God for the incredible, but now he's struggling trusting him to make it alive out of Pharaoh's court. He should have never gone down to Egypt in the first place. And that is where we know Sarah picked up her handmaid, Hagar. And years later, Abraham again compromised God's promise by going along with his wife's plan of how to have a baby, how to have the child of promise, have it through Hagar. The scripture is clear that Abram had been an ungodly man in the past. He had had times of of disobedience. He had lied. He had taken matters into his own hands. Abraham could not boast before God that he was a righteous man. Paul is making the point in verse 4 that people who work for something get paid for it. And that is not a gift, rather payment for what is owed to them. If a person was good enough to do works in order to get to heaven, then God would actually owe them eternal life. And it would be like he is in debt to men. But God owes no man anything. If people could get to heaven because of their good works, then there really was no need for Jesus to come and die for sinful, ungodly people. So this false way of thinking actually robs God of his glory. As one author put it, the primary purpose of the gospel is not to save men, but to glorify God. In verse 5, salvation cannot be by works because it makes God, as I said, a debtor. It also gives man then a reason to boast. Look what I've done. Rather, salvation has to be by faith. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Like Abraham, the person who is justified has nothing to commend himself to God. A sinner knows that they're a failure in God's sight. They know they're spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing in us to boast about. Like Abraham, a person must see themselves as ungodly, as spiritually poor, as lost, as separated from a holy God because of our sin. 
When Abraham believed God, God imputed righteousness to his account and at that moment declared him righteous. And that is the same way people are saved today from the wrath of God. The blessings of being justified are mentioned in verses 6 through 8 where Paul decides to give another illustration of the greatest king of Israel who was also justified by faith. King David wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So David is proclaiming that it is God's grace that provides forgiveness. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, so David was justified by faith. It has always been by God's grace and is the same today. So the first eight verses have clearly taught that a person cannot get to heaven because of their righteous good works. And Abraham is proof of this truth as well as David. So now he's going to take the argument a step further because of the pride of the Jewish um, community thinking, well, the fact that I'm circumcised and we were given the law and we keep the law, that makes us in a great place with God. Paul anticipates his audience will still object to the truth that he's just given because they believe their circumcision made them acceptable to God. Paul now asks some questions to make his audience think. The examples of Abraham and David give a complete picture of justification. Righteousness is credited to Abraham's account, and the sin of David is no longer on his account. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So Paul now reminds his Jewish audience about the timing and the date of Abraham's circumcision. In verse 10, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So the truth of the matter is that Abraham was justified, declared righteous before God before he was ever circumcised. In fact, it had been many years before that God had declared him righteous. He's at 99 years old when he's circumcised. Ishmael is now 13 years old as well. When God made that covenant with Abraham... In Genesis 15, Ishmael wasn't even born. So it was after his salvation, being declared righteous, that Abraham was, declared, uh, was circumcised. Abraham was a Gentile when God first called him, when he believed God, and he, God declared him righteous. Circumcision never made him declared righteous before God. It was simply a sign and a seal for God's covenant people. When Abraham obeyed God's command to be circumcised, God had already circumcised his heart. Remember, we saw this in chapter 2, that uh, this religious ritual simply pointed to the symbol of sin being cut away in the very place it's passed on to children. We read in verse 11 about circumcision and a sign. A sign is is a mark to identify being part of the Jewish community and God's covenant people, but a seal for Abraham... Uh, was something God did. A sign points to something, and a, goal, and a seal guarantees it. It's guaranteeing God had declared him righteous years earlier. You know, as believers, we participate in the Lord's Supper. When we come to faith, uh, hopefully we follow up and are baptized and give our testimony about our salvation. But all those things are simply outward signs of what has supposedly happened inside of us. <clears throat> if you're married... You wear a wedding ring because it's the symbol of your marriage vows. And that's not, what, that's not what makes you married. It just is an outward symbol that you are married. 
In verse 11, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So Abraham has declared righteous by God years before he was circumcised so that he might be the leader for all Gentiles who had never been circumcised, who are saved through faith. For the Jew and the Gentile alike, salvation has always been by faith alone. This great man of faith is the pattern for everyone who will ever experience salvation. We all must follow Abraham's belief and trust God and take him at his word. Then the next argument would be about all keeping the law. Salvation can't be gained by keeping the law. Paul speaks of the promises given to Abraham known as the Abrahamic covenant. God had promised Abraham descendants. He promised him the land of Canaan. He promised him blessings to all the families of the earth through the one who would come from him. The seed of Abraham ultimately led to Jesus Christ. And all who trust in him receive every spiritual blessing of salvation. A part of that will include the day when all of his own will inherit the earth where Jesus will reign. When God made this promise, he did not lay down any conditions to Abraham back in Genesis 15 and 16 that things that he had to do or things he could not do in order to receive this promise. It was not conditional based on him keeping the law. It was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the reality is that the law of Moses wasn't given until 430 years after God declared Abraham righteous. Paul is proving that salvation cannot be based on keeping the law because Abraham wasn't, was given the promise of salvation before the law was ever given. So with that being the fact, how could anyone think they are saved by keeping the law when Abraham was saved apart from the law? Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and promise, the promise is nullified. So just as people, uh, the people Paul was addressing in his letter back then, this truth still applies today to people who say they are saved uh, because they've trusted Christ and I was baptized, I was confirmed, I take communion, I whatever the blank of your particular belief system might be. But here Paul says that keeping the law has no part in salvation. Otherwise, faith is useless. Law and faith are opposites. Law depends on self for salvation, and faith depends on Christ for salvation. In other words, there's no value in a promise that no one is capable of attaining. If God's promises to Abraham depended on him keeping the law, then it would have never been fulfilled because he nor anyone else can ever keep the law. The Jewish people long for the Messiah to come and set up his kingdom on earth and make their inheritance a reality. But they thought this would come because they kept the law. But the opposite is true. Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. We have seen the wrath of God in chapter 2 and 1, rather, of his holy hatred for sin. And the law brings punishment because its purpose was to show people how sinful we really are. We saw in chapter 1 that even before the law of Moses, there was sin. Everybody violates their own conscience. But when the law was given, now that same sin is a violation of God's law and must be punished. The law actually defines sin, and it makes our guilt abundantly clear. And it carries a penalty for breaking that law. If there is no speed limit on a highway, you can go 120 miles an hour, no problem. Somebody puts up a speed limit sign from the government, says 70. Now you go 120 and you are a lawbreaker. 
and so it is with the law of God. Abraham was declared righteous without any conditions attached. He shows us that faith and works cannot go together to be saved. The promises of God would be worthless if it depended on people keeping the law because, as you know, to be guilty in one point is to be guilty of it all. Salvation must be by faith. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So that promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the reason salvation must be by faith is so that it might be in accordance with God's grace. Grace is God's kindness to show to people who do not deserve it. In fact, we all deserve punishment. God is the one who plans salvation so that he is the one who is glorified, not people. Salvation has to be by his grace alone or else people will get praise for their achievements because they made it to heaven because of their own effort. Salvation is not a reward for our accomplishments. It is based only on God's undeserved favor towards sinners. There is no other way salvation could be guaranteed other than by faith. If works are a part of that, then there could never be any certainty because no one would know for sure if you'd done enough. And how many people steeped in their particular religious denominations live in fear that they just didn't do quite enough? If salvation were ever earned or kept based on our behavior, obviously we've all already lost it. Certainly Abraham could have looked back on his life. He could have seen his doubts. He could have wondered about when he told lies about his wife not being, being a sister and not his wife. He could have thought about when he schemed to help God out with Hagar and all those thoughts. But he was still in right standing with God because his faith was in a faithful God whom he trusted not in his human effort. And that brings us to what characterizes his faith. Um, he believed God and trusted him to do what he promised. At verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The initial promise from God to Abraham was that he would be the father of many, but you know it was a long time that there was no reality to that. He had no children. To have no heir in Abraham's day culturally was very painful and humiliating. The pressure to fix this problem in the way that his culture dealt with it, which would always be to have a surrogate uh, woman, was to use the body of a slave, Hagar, to fix the problem of not having any children. Here is the human attempt. God, you promised me a son. You're not doing it, so... This must be what you want me to do. And Ishmael was the result of that union. And Abraham wanted him to be the promised child God had promised. But God said, no, he's not the child of promise. Rather, when Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 89, God changes his name to mean father of a multitude. At this point in time, it was humanly impossible to have a child because their reproduction organs were dead. This meant they would have to trust God to fulfill his promise and give life to their dead organs in order to bring about the existence of Isaac, their son. God put Abraham in an impossible situation in order for Abraham to trust God to fulfill his word. He believed God would accomplish what he said. He hoped when the situation was completely hopeless. And how often God does the same with us. We find ourselves in hopeless circumstances. 
And do we believe his promises? We say we believe him, that he's forgiven us for our sins, and that we're right with him for eternity. And then we cannot trust him and believe him for the situation we're facing today. Well, Abraham was a man of faith. He believed God in absolutely hopeless and impossible situations. In verse 19, as Abraham contemplated his own body, an old man, now as good as dead, he understood the facts that he and Sarah were just too old to have a baby. But that did not shut down his faith. He understood reality. He knew what, was, what his body was, yet he didn't weaken in his faith. He looked beyond the impossible circumstances to God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which doesn't exist. Oh, to be women of faith like Abraham and really believe God. You know, you think about the ministry of Jesus when you read the gospel, and he is always so thrilled when somebody actually believes him. <laughs> you know, you believe, and that, that is critical. Why do we believe him for the, our salvation, the most monumental thing on the planet, <laughs> and then not believe him about the bills or our health? So want to be like Abraham, women of faith. It's so easy to let our problems or trials be the focus of our life rather than the Lord. Abraham looked at the impossibility. He looked at Almighty God, and he knew nothing's impossible. Abraham was just a man. And there are times we obviously know, we study his life, where he struggled with his faith. Yet verse 20 tells us, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong, giving glory to God. Abraham did rest in God's promises, and God was glorified. I think of the time how his faith grew, when you imagine that he finally had his wonderful son of promise in his old age, and now God says, sacrifice that son to me. What a test from God. It reminded me of a portion of the book by Jerry Bridges, Trusting God, where he says, if we are going to learn to trust God in adversity... We must believe that just as certainly as God will allow nothing to subvert his glory, so he will allow nothing to spoil the good he is working out in us and for us. It often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. Trusting God is worked out in the arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstance in which we must frequently trust God. In order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith, not of sense, end of quote. And this is what Abraham did, and his faith glorified God. Verse 21, Abraham had full assurance in God's ability to fulfill the promise. Faith trusts God to keep his word. He trusted God to make him a father of many nations. He was declared righteous because he believed God's word. In verse 22, we read again that it was also credited to him as righteousness. Paul just keeps driving the same point home. As a sinful man, there was no way Abraham could meet the holy standards of a righteous God. By faith, God enables a person to have divine righteousness that only God is able to give them. So how do we apply Abraham's faith? The rest of the chapter talks about now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. 
So the story about Abraham and his faith is critical for us to grasp today because this is how all men, women, boys, and girls are saved from the penalty of sin by trust in God's word. Think about what little information Abraham had (laughs) compared to the full revelation of all the scriptures that we have. And yet, with his limited revelation, Abraham anticipated the Savior to come would be raised from the dead. Just as Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead, so we too have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Abraham was convinced of God's ability to bring life out of death. And so we too must be convinced that God raised Christ from the dead. And why is that so important? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the way God proclaims to all that Jesus died for our sins and God is satisfied with the death of Christ. So like Abraham, we have to see ourselves as spiritually dead, unable to redeem ourselves. We have no spiritual life within ourselves. Scripture says all our works are just filthy rags. We must rest on God's word that eternal life is offered as a gift from Christ. And when we put our trust in Jesus, it's like Abraham who trusted God for the promises he made. It is by faith that we realize our sin separates us from God, making us deserving of eternal judgment. And it is that same faith then placed in Jesus as the one who died for our sins that brings saving faith. And we see the truth about our spiritual condition. We have to look away from all of our human effort and look strictly to the promise of God for salvation. This is the reason God was, uh, Abraham was called the friend of God. I think so many times people confuse sanctification and justification. Remember, all who believe God and have called out to him to be their savior are justified. They are declared righteous at that moment. Nobody knows that transpired at that moment, but that's what happens. God declares us righteous the moment we turn to him, repent of our sins, and call on him to save us. And when a sinner like you or me is declared righteous, God immediately then starts the process with his children to make us more like his son. But God begins to renew our minds, change how we think, how we act. This is sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ as we grow in holiness. It is that ever and never-ending fight against our flesh of putting sin to death. It's the Spirit helping us obey the Lord when we don't feel like it. And when we are justified before God, we are declared righteous. That is our position before God. Sanctification is being conformed to the image as he works to change our attitudes and priorities in life. So justification is not a work, and it's not progressive. The most immature believer, somebody who trusts Christ right now in this room and calls upon him for salvation, is just as justified as the 80-year-old saint who has trusted God 80 years ago. Equally justified. We must never confuse the ongoing work of sanctification with the finished work of the fact that we have been declared righteous. So what joy every believer should have knowing we can approach God's throne with confidence. Not because we've done a good job with all of our spiritual duties today. I had my quiet time. I did my Bible study. I got to witness to somebody. Check, check, check. So now I feel good about talking to God. No. It's because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ that we come to him. We are saved because we've come to that place where we know we have nothing to offer God. There's no place for any human pride of any sort. This gospel message taught to us today is the one, ladies, we have to keep preaching to ourselves every single day. 
If you already blew it today before you came here, yelling at people in your family, angry at people who cut you off in the car driving here today, all those things, we need to repent so we stay in fellowship with God. But thank God for the finished work of Christ that paid for those sins. You are declared righteous if you've trusted him. So press on in faithful obedience today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. That's what this is. This is the whole message. This is the only way anybody could be right with God. I thank you that you called Abraham so many years ago, that you worked in his heart, that he believed you. Lord, help us to trust you. For any here, Lord, I don't know the heart of the women sitting here. There may be some who've never really seen that as nothing to do with their ability to be good, but it is only solely based on the forgiveness you offer through Christ's death, and the fact that you will give us his righteousness. I pray you'll give understanding to any here who may not grasp this, that they would embrace this gospel message and trust you. And Lord, for those of us who have done that, help us to live a life that reflects faith, that we believe you for the crisis that's going to come today or next week or next month. Lord, help us to believe you Not just that you've saved us and forgiven us, but that you're going to take us all the way home one day. In your name, amen.